0: Welcome to the ACFCS Financial Crime Cast, a briefing featuring the latest news, analysis, and guidance from across the financial crime spectrum. I'm Brian Smota-Kindle, VP of Product and Programming at ACFCS, and on this episode, we return to a theme that's dominated headlines and many compliance programs in 2022. That is, of course, sanctions screening. We're now eight months into the year, and sanctions imposed on Russian entities and individuals have continued at a brisk In just the past two weeks, the US has imposed a raft of new sanctions on oligarchs, suspected associates of Russian President Vladimir Putin, while the EU has targeted a number of individuals and the Russian gold sector. The impacts on financial institutions continue to be wide-ranging and substantial, with effects on transaction monitoring, business operations, and services, among others. Rising to this sanctions compliance challenge starts with a strong screening program, but that's not enough in and of itself. It's essential to look beyond current sanctions lists to truly manage a firm's exposure. To understand how, I'm joined by Alex Pillow, the director of market strategy with Moody's Analytics KYC. He brings insights from working with financial institutions around the globe to discuss the importance of understanding indirect ownership and control, how individuals circumvent sanctions, and the need for accurate and up-to-date information and data for sanction screening. Well, Alex, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to have you on this episode of the Financial Crime Cast. Um, fantastic topic, really obviously top of mind, I think, for our institutions out there. So it's uh, great to have you here and great to have this conversation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me and the invite.
0: And if you don't mind just starting out uh, by letting the audience know a little bit about your background in this this space, you're the director of KYC Market Strategy for Moody's Analytics, but tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your experience in the sanctions realm.
1: Sure. So I think I first got involved in this bit of the compliance world, 2016. So I worked for a company called RDC, which among other solutions had a sanction screening uh, product. Um, and so that was sort of my introduction and, and worked for them for a number of years, uh, left and worked for another reg tech and then came back and, and did another role. Moody's acquired the business and um, I've had a lot of opportunity to, to look at different parts of the market since then in the role of market strategy, generally look at what's out there right now, how, how is the ecosystem operating, where do we plug in, where should we plug in, um, and trying to advise various teams, speak to a lot of clients. Um, so, yeah, quite a quite a varied role, which means I can often take a holistic view, um, or, or, you know, very wide without going particularly deep sometimes, but it, but it can at least start, start certain conversations. And I guess in this context of sanctions, when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine um, towards the end of February, then I sort of put my hand up to say, look, we're going to need to do a response to this to really think about where do our solutions help our customers? They're going to be under a lot of pressure. Um, so I got the opportunity to lead our initial response to that before handing it over to sort of relevant teams and stakeholders um, that have been able to support clients moving forward.
0: Excellent. Well, it must have been a busy, uh, busy last few weeks for you. So we're uh, <laughs> we appreciate you. We appreciate you making time to join us, uh, and it's great to have that kind of, you know, global perspective um, from the response, you know, and and assisting multiple institutions, organizations all around the world. So um, this should be this should be interesting. So uh, let's let's talk about it. We kind of set the landscape up already by by mentioning the uh, Russian invasion of the Ukraine. Obviously, this has driven a Really unprecedented, I would say, wave of uh, sanctions designations. Thousands of sanctions designations added um, over the past several weeks. More still being, you know, added. Really on a at least weekly basis. If in some cases multiple times a week. Um, so the volume of sanctions designations and the scale of these sanctions is really something that uh, that's hard to find ever occurring in the past. Um, uh, let's talk about you know what companies, institutions, um, sanctions organizations might be missing when they're screening for sanctions. Um, Sanction screening is obviously a critical part of the compliance program, not the only piece of the sanctions compliance program, but but really kind of maybe you could argue the heart of it. and, you know, the answer might be, the answer right now might be they're missing a lot at the moment, um, but given it particularly, you know, in the context of this scale and the scope that we're dealing with, what are you seeing as, as some things that people are really missing or are really struggling with?
1: Sure. So I think, I think it's the, uh, ever frustrating answer of it depends, but <laughs> we can, uh, we can go, go back a couple of levels. So I think, I think the first thing is that, um those who don't know much about sanctions screening that aren't living and breathing it every day tend to simplify it for obvious reasons it helps them contextualize what it is and how it works and there's a danger it becomes oversimplified so you say what are sanctions you go well governments and authorities can issue these names on lists of organizations of people or you know sometimes whole countries or regions and you can't do, you can't work with them if you're going to do business in in the issuing authorities country or or within their power structure so the US and OFAC is considered generally the most serious and most powerful in the world because the US dollar is the, you know, de facto currency of the world. Um, so they have the widest reach and the most most power. Um, so you go, okay, there's names on the list and I've got to check my third parties and who I do business with. Seems, seems reasonable. You know, in many people's minds, that could be a control F function. <laughs> um, and then you go, okay, well, it's a little bit more complex than that. People do try and get around these things. You need what some people call fuzzy matching, others would just call name matching logic, where you look for variations, you look for synonyms, you look for aliases. Okay, it's a little bit more complicated. And then you say, okay, well, that's actually only one part of sanctions. And that's when a lot of people's understanding does tend to stop if they're not in it and a professional in the the area. So you go, okay, those are the names on the list. There are also names that are off the list, which is why at Moody's, we talk a lot about going beyond the list as sort of the drive-in phrase, um, if if you like. So that can break down into a few areas. You have ownership and control by the legislation, by the the regulation. In the US, at least, if you are a company that's owned 50% or more, or more than 50% um, by a sanctioned entity, you yourself are considered sanctioned. Some of those names will be on the list. Not all of them will be, and we've evidenced that time and again. There is also the notion of by control, which is more prevalent in, in the European Union and the UK. Both have uh, this written into their, their leg- legislation where you don't necessarily need to be uh, have 50% or more of a company to control it. There are different things you can do with your voting rights, with your relationships to other beneficial owners or shareholders or um, directors within the business. Um, and all of those things need to be considered to figure out who is actually in control of this entity. And if the person that's controlling it is sanctioned, um, then again, that that entity would be considered sanctioned by by the letter of the law. And again, not all of those names are going to be on the list. So suddenly this is a lot harder to do. You've got to actually go out and do this due diligence, uh, figure out both the the math and the sort of subjective um, uh I'm not thinking quantitative qualitative aspects as well and, and make sure you know your arguments and you have your evidence and you have your justifiable stance to whether you're going to do business or not uh, with these entities you can go to the next level uh comprehensive sanctions have been a big deal in in this in, you know post the invasion of ukraine where Luhansk and donetsk have been named as you cannot do business with entities and people in those regions there are some general licenses and certain exceptions but Let's just say you can't do business there. Well, who is actually there and who's got the evidence of that? Who has got enough data to be able to show that? Um, and you could do it you know, self-declared ways and questionnaires and things like that, but how reliable are they? Um, so that opens up another aspect. And the fourth area that we talk about, we talk about four types of sanction risk. You've got on the list, ownership and control. You've got uh, the uh, comprehensive and the final one is cautionary. So those that might not be considered sanctioned, but are... Know, by the letter of the law or anything else but are associated to someone or something that is let's say that there is an oligarch you know, you know i can think of several examples that i've, I've researched uh, since this happened um their son-in-law or daughter-in-law are not sanctioned so what is to stop them shifting assets into that person's name um okay there might be some some controls but it can be done we imagine it probably would be there's there's a you know, maybe beyond reasonable doubt, um, that could be debated, but there's something there. Those names are not sanctioned, would not be considered sanctioned, but you might take extreme caution in doing business with them. And again, where do you get those names if they're not on the list? So it becomes a lot harder to source the data. And I think that's what a lot of uh, companies miss. They focus so hard on number one, and it is critical. But have they got processes, controls, the right set of vendors, and... Um, the right sort of justification frameworks to how are they going to address the second type, the third type, and the fourth type, so they are covering that holistic picture.
0: Yeah, some fantastic points there. I think this idea of going beyond the list has really been put on sort of uh, glaring display lately, as you mentioned with you know uh, these these very prominent oligarchs getting their yachts seized and, you know, wall-to-wall coverage of this asset hunt all around uh, the world for Russian yeah. assets. Um, it right. really does put those two, three, four levels that you mentioned very much kind of in, in the,
1: the forefront of uh, people's considerations. Yeah. Well, Brian, n- naming no names, but to give a couple of examples, just because <laughs> naming no names because I want to make sure <laughs> that no one from legal wags the finger at me, but um, we, we did a bunch of research on these, Uh, on the oligarchs that were put on on the list and the entities that were put on the list as they're coming out. So to give you one idea, there there were two entity banks that were put on the list. We we looked through our data. OFAC had 42 additional names that were linked to those two. But when we did our analysis, we found 194 that you could consider sanctioned uh, by extension or over 50% ownership. We did another analysis where we looked at 12 oligarchs that were put on the list. So not entities, but oligarchs, the individual's. We were able to find 2,000 entities that you could argue they have control of, just over 2,000. I'm using over 25% integrated ownership as a measure here. Again, people can argue the, the rights and wrongs of what measure you should use, but to, in this example, we did that. So 12 becomes over 2,000. And then we looked again at how many connections there then are through that network, and you've got over 12,000, actually close to 13,000. So you start to get a, a sense of the scale of uh, the issue. Because all you know your listeners will know if they work in financial crime, anti-financial crime, you know most serious efforts, you know serious amounts of money that are are laundered or, or, or fraudulent in some way. It doesn't happen by an individual off the street. It's a network of companies or network of entities and lots of people are involved. So yeah you go from 12 names on the list to over 12,000 um, names. it's it's a much bigger job than sometimes it's given credit for
0: yeah the complexity and the uh, the, the scale of it uh, expands quite rapidly when you start looking at the networks. but I mean that's essential because to your point, you know these networks and these corporate entities and these linked uh, individuals accounts are how the money actually moves. It's not just a matter of you know targeting individuals. Um, and you know on uh, uh, you made an important point regarding uh regulate sanctions sanctions regulations around ownership um it's even a kind of a level more complex than that because these uh tests for ownership vary between jurisdictions and even between certain sanctions regimes right it's not always just one uh standard sort of um, rule that you need to apply when you're when you're looking for ownership um so it seems like there's even a, a level of you know, of struggling there, right, that in, that that uh, institutions and organizations have to do in order to determine what actually constitutes ownership.
1: Absolutely. I think a lot of this, people have had processes, have had, you know, oh, this is what we do here. And this, um yes, I don't want to call it an incident. It sounds too insignificant. This, you know, since the invasion um and all of the activity and sanctions, I think it's really refocused everyone's minds on, okay, are we doing this? well are we doing this effectively because obviously we can issue all the sanctions we like from you know whether you're from the us or the uk or the eu or any of the countries that have issued sanctions unless they're enforced by the private sector then they won't have the desired impact so you know uh, as i think the vast majority if not everyone um you know wants this to end this is one of the ways that we get to help as an industry but it has to be effective you know it, it can't be where we tick the box it's you need to go beyond the lists again to repeat that phrase. Make sure you're looking at those networks so that we can be effective as, you know, global community. Sounds a little bit clib, but I'm struggling for a better phrase.
0: No, it's a, it's a great point. I mean, I think refocusing on the effectiveness piece is maybe if we're looking for upsides from this 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 uh, you know crisis is is one of the the upsides here, um, rather than you know compliance. Yeah, we've applied the rules. We've done the screening you know, have we actually identified assets of sanctioned, you know, individuals and entities is really the question. And that's where we get into these these deeper dives that you're talking about here. So let's, I I want to unpack uh, what you mentioned before around the control piece. I think Mm -hmm. ownership, you know, it it makes sense. It can be complex and difficult to unravel, but control is even, you know, kind of a next level down, right? Um, How is ownership different than than control? Um, and, and what about identifying control in the sanctions context and some of the challenges you see there?
1: Sure, it's, it is really difficult. Um, there's a lot of work that we do here at Moody's with, with some partners as well that, that looks at the mathematics of this, and I'm not a numbers guy per se, so I, I won't go into the most complex examples, but I'll give a really simple one. Um, if you imagine a business or a business structure that is ultimately controlled by free individuals, and two of them own 49%, and the third one owns 2%. How many of the decisions that decide where that corporate structure is going to go or what the company is going to do, or et cetera, do they get to control? We go, well, not much because you've got the other two, right? It's like, well, no, actually, about 50% of the time, they get a in vote because every time one of the 49 picks one way and the other one picks the other, they can choose to go one side or the other. They get to move. Where they want to go and if they have a particular relationship with one of them maybe they're always going to side with that one. So actually their ability to control would be higher into sort of the 50 percent versus the 2 percent ownership stake they have. That's really simplified and slightly contrived but it's how I've educated myself to how that piece works and I hope, I hope that's helpful for anyone that hasn't come across the concept before. Um, but certainly there's you know no one's claiming it's easy. I think you've got to have the right data you've got to understand the algorithms in depth. That's why, as I mentioned earlier, I project managed sort of the initial response and then have handed over to the appropriate people. And yeah, I'm grateful that for the last several years, actually, uh, some of my colleagues um, that work with our business data and look at things you can do with that have been working on that problem, not for this particular, as you say, crisis, but in general, it's something that we should always have been doing. It's just become much more important now because the spotlight's on. Um, So yeah, anyone that's wants to learn more about this, reach out and I'll I'll connect you with the right people here.
0: Great points and very interesting with this idea of, you know, representing it mathematically, right? Because it can seem um, hard to understand how this, you know, fragmented control structure would allow someone to actually make overriding decisions or consistently control it. But I think that example Mm. does
1: does illustrate it quite well. Um, uh, the, the, The reason it's important, again, is that, not everyone, I stress not everyone, but a number of companies, you know, a lot of people talk about defaults. Everyone likes everyone likes to have a rule because then they feel safe. They go, right, as long as we screened the you know above 50%, we're fine. Or, or then some people move it to 25, some people even move it to 10. But in that example, you've got someone that would fall below all of those boundaries because you're only looking at ownership. Whereas if you looked at control as a metric, they would make it into your screen, you know, your population to be alerted on, and then you could you might still decide that's actually okay. You may come to a different conclusion and say that's saying we can live with and we're going to mitigate the risk, but you should evidence that. It shouldn't just be saying you don't look at because there's a rule that says at this number, we're fine. And because, you know, guess who who knows those rules? We all know them, but so do the people trying to evade um, or or mitigate, you know, for those sanctioned, um, the effects. So, You've got to remember, they, they read it the regulation as well. They know what controls are put in place. You've then got to find ways and measures of, of catching them out as they try to uh, play that game.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I mean, I think it's something that that for those that maybe don't do it day to day again, Um might not seem immediately apparent, but obviously this is all public, right? Anytime anyone's added right. to a, a sanctions list, any entity, it's it's well known, so um, it's put out there very publicly. Anyone can go download the OFAC list off the site. So uh, anyone who is who is designated <laughs> is going to know it very quickly. Um, well,
1: but, well, there's there's historic examples. So again, pre uh, pre this crisis. Uh, My colleague, Ted Dada, who's done various podcasts and webinars and and speaks at a number of events, Um, he's done loads of research on this with with his team. And it's what we we see in our business data um, database called Orbis uh, that Moody's Moody's owns and operates. Um, When an entity or an individual in particular is sanctioned, you can watch over the coming days and weeks in the data that they move most of their holdings below the threshold. And time and time again, you see the same pattern. These people are not um not stupid. Um, so they go to the letter of the law, which I think then puts the onus on us as the, the anti-financial crime profession or or those trying to make sanctions um effective in their exerting of pressure to go with the spirit of the law sometimes. Again, that's something to be debated, and there's plenty of people with valid points of view that know that's that's the public sector's job, that's government's job, not private sector. But I I think it is a debate that people need to have internally um, and make sure they're really clear on their arguments.
0: Agreed. yeah, absolutely. And uh, to that point, to, to pull that thread a little bit further, what are you seeing sanctioned individuals, entities, particularly in this context? Mm-hmm. Um, without giving away sort of the secret sauce right of, of how to <laughs> evade sanctions but uh, what what are some trends you're seeing mm-hmm. in terms of sanctions evasion um, is it kind of the tried and true you know complex corporate structures is it you know I've, there's been a lot of concern around things like cryptocurrencies or emerging payment methods is it sort of an all of the above strategy any any uh, signs or markers you're seeing uh, from from the sanctions evasion side,
1: so this is going to sound like a shameless plug, but it's generally because I want to talk about the people we we were able to interview. We have our, our own Moody's KYC podcast, KYC Decoded. We did a sanctions mini uh, joined by um, three, three gentlemen that were you know, experts in their field. So Andreas, who's head of AML um, at a Swedish payments company and sort of talked around the ownership and control and talking about the lack of data he sometimes had available in his existing systems compared to what he maybe had at... Um, in some other, other functions where he had more and the, the necessity to go and look at those structures. So this change of structure is one way that people will try and get around these things, changing their ownership, changing their holdings, maybe creating further holding companies, shell companies, you might call some of them. Um, and that becomes an indicator. There's more shell companies. Why? You know, there, there are some legitimate uses, but a lot of the time it's just to you know, create a bigger web, to create more le- layers of um, obfuscation, if I'm saying that correctly, or that word correctly. We then had Graham Barrow, who many of this podcast no doubt listen to on his his Dark Money Files podcast and follow his posts on on LinkedIn. We talked about networks. And one of the the things that he he looks for a lot in his work is nominee directors. So, okay, I want to set up this whole structure, but I don't want my name on it. Well, actually, there's a whole practice that goes on in this sort of uh, company formation agency world, which seems a little bit suspect of paying people to be a director of a company for a period of time these people are not running the business they are simply a name that signs some paper and they get paid a you know for them not an insignificant amount of money for you know certain other people it would be insignificant if they're trying to move high high amounts um and okay so how do you combat that well the name is not on the list there might not even be a known association between the person that's asked them to do it and the person whose name's there but the fact that their name is often used many, many times for many, many companies can serve as an indicator. So you start to look at that as well. So that's another way nominee directorships and, and shareholders. Um, and we then had David Carlyle from Elliptic, but who previously worked at OFAC, um, talk, come on and talk about crypto. I think the the overarching theme there was, yes, it's possible that some money is being moved into crypto for potentially sanctions evasion, but there simply isn't enough liquidity in crypto to move the amounts that these oligarchs would need to. So it's it's not the way, it's one of many. And it's more likely that the bulk of it is going through the traditional means of offshore structures, shell companies, nominee directors, um, and some of those other things I've mentioned. So those are a few. I won't claim to know, know all of them. I'm not an investigator, but I do try to listen to the people that are um and yeah if if you have any thoughts then again shameless plug go listen to those three on those three episodes and and let us know if you think we missed anything um (laughs) (laughs) yeah so so there's a few i i I default to the those that do that work uh with that sort of question
0: no absolutely i think that's a i think those are some uh, you know great points i think uh you know these these Tools, techniques, strategies, you know, channels to to move funds in evasion of sanctions have been developed over decades. They're very robust. You know, they don't necessarily need to turn to cryptocurrencies or, or something like that. There is a wide array of professionals, both on the criminal side and the, uh, you know, the, in, the legal it, side, frankly, who can assist with this type of work.
1: <laughs> cool. So I mean, it, it's one of those where it's not evil or it's, you should be doing both. You should be controlling the risk of both. And I know that's more work. I know that can be frustrating, particularly teams that they that overburdened or overstretched. They don't have enough people. They don't have enough budget to buy all the tools they would like, but it's our responsibility. You know, we've got to do the best we can rather than worry about what, what we haven't got figure out how to use what we do have. Um, there are some fantastic blockchain analytics tools out there. Um, I've done some work with David in the past and, and done some other work with these guys to look at how we could maybe help uh, plug some of that gap. Looking at company data, as Graham would say, sideways, rather than a lot of us look at it and go, okay, well, it's verified and it's regulated and great, fantastic. It's a company, I can, I can do business with that. I know who UBO is, di- didn't flag on the, on the screen in. Actually, no. How else can we look at that? How many times have they incorporated the company? How long has the company been around? Is that address a frequently used address? Is it come from a formation agent rather than a, someone setting up a genuine business? What does that business do? Can they prove it? Um, there's some of these tougher questions, and I, I, I say as someone who likes automation, who likes instant onboarding, who gets frustrated when I don't get my service straight away when I sign up online. So I'm not saying. Right, we've got a whole whole business totally, but it's um it's figuring out smart ways to do that. And I think there is a a lot more technology and data out there than sometimes is appreciated. Um, it's about going and finding it, knowing who to talk to, um, and then knowing how to make the business case internally to your CFOs or CEOs and saying, look, what kind of company do we want to be? Um, if we live up to these things that we often you know a lot of companies say around you know integrity, etc., then these are some of the things we can actively do um, to to play a bigger role in the world, even if it's not something that we get to go hand over a big check to an organization. That's important too, but so is this, is I guess my point, um, is it's maybe not a photo op, but it's uh, arguably going to have a huge, huge impact on, you know, arguably the biggest crisis of, well, there's been a lot of crises recently, (laughs) uh, but I don't want to see this one snowball. Um, And so with all these sanctions, would love to see them uh, bring this to an end.
0: Yeah, no, it's a it's a great point, and I think from a you know compliance practitioner perspective, it's again you know searching for upsides here. There is a uh, there is an upside in the sense that you now have more you know leverage, so to speak, to say, hey, we need the tools, the resources, and the the perspective to uh, to take this seriously and be proactive rather than simply you know adding another name to the list and and calling it a day and processing our backlog of, of sanctions alerts, right? So yeah. there is uh, some benefit I think that's, there.
1: That's one of the things that initially concerned me when this this started was the first set of questions that I saw coming through. was It was all about the first type of risk. It was all, when are the lists updated? Are they updated You know, every day or, or whatever? It's like, yes, of course, we've done that for years. But it was like a panic mode on that first one. It's understandable because of the scrutiny and the questions that would have been asked internally from those that aren't close to it. But what I wanted to see was the questions around, hey, control, ownership, you know, network, uh, the networks, because arguably that's that's where the people that are going to evade it, you know, spend their time. So, again, not everyone, but enough people that raise the concern. And that's why I think we've talked a lot about this at Moody's. We, we know we actually have a lot of solutions that, that are other solutions in the market, but we think we're particularly good on this. Um, and therefore wanted to sort of get that message out that, there, there are ways to prevent it. It's not one where we throw our hands up in the air and go, oh, it's too hard, or I've not been told to do it by whoever. It's no guys for this. Make our best efforts. Sang slips through. It's, you know, it's not great, but it's not, it won't be for lack of trying. It's going to be because we put everything into it. Um, I yeah. think that's what we're we're really working for with our, our clients that are really, you know, on the front line of this. Um, is they're figuring out how to be the best in the world at, at sanctions. You know, affecting this or you know, enforcing it from the private sector, um, rather than can I tick a box, which isn't the attitude that's going to get us to to sort of success.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And and uh, you know, I think the one to close it out, the one piece I do want to touch on here, the last question I'll throw your way um, is kind of looking at it from the reverse perspective. We've 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 talked quite a bit about um techniques and and mindset to uh, identify sanctions evasion but what about applying the same thing to allowing good transactions through I think it's almost mm. uh, equally important right because particularly right now you have a lot of um, companies still operating in, for example, Ukraine, even even conflict zones in Ukraine. You um, mm-hmm. have remittances, you know, that are that are uh, going back to Ukraine, um, and so you still have these funds flows and Russia as well. I mean, there's still legitimate businesses operating in Russia. There's payments coming to and from Russia yeah. that are not subject to sanctions. Um, so there is a need not only to uh, identify the the potentially illicit activity, but also to not just you know kind of step away and say either it's too risky or we don't have the right tools or whatever from all the potential legitimate activities so have you seen um some institutions kind of balance this this piece of it the, the need to apply sanctions not just to uh you know designated entities but also not apply sanctions to, yeah, to the wrong yeah, people course, right of course yeah.
1: so i think I' think this- well, there's a few different pieces um I'll probably think of more as I go so cut me off if I'm taking too much time um, the first one and again I'll I'll mention my colleague Ted Dada who's who's fantastic at talking about this but is uh, master data management it's going to be your screening program will not be as clean and as efficient as you would like it if your master data is potentially messy has errors etc so one of the things we we advise clients to do and help clients do is, use some of the data that we have in conjunction themselves um, to really clean that up get that master data file right so that you're then going to have less knock-on effects less messiness later the next bit is being very specific know what you're looking for so which list are you exposed to which list do you need make sure you've got your configuration set up for that Um, make sure when you're talking about ownership control you're looking for what you have designated is within or or outside your risk appetite. So getting the controls right, all of these things can be configured. The data is incredibly granular, um, so you can actually apply a lot of this uh, more than I think most most people appreciate. Um, and then it's about the technology you put it into. You know, how good is the name matching? Do you, does it automate the next step? Have you done the you know is the CIP or IDV program, depending on whether you're US or, or, or this side of the Atlantic, you'll call it different things. Is that program set up right and is it all tied in? So we talk about straight through processing a lot, a lot, uh, particularly with our colleagues at Passport, um, where you know, they they go upwards of 90% when you, when you set it up correctly. So yeah, I think you've got master data management, you've got configuration of the solutions and using the granularity of the data to drive the filters. And then you've got to have the right technology that's going to allow each step to automate so you're not reliant on people which you know, are inherently the best at investigations but maybe the worst at moving data from one place to another. It's not what the human brain is set up for compared to a machine. Um, and getting that through so that any of the real alerts are got straight to the right people who can investigate. They haven't got a huge backlog because you've done all the work up front. Whereas all those hopefully good transactions or the, or the bulk of them are you know, going through. And if some of them need to be scored medium risk or additional monitoring needs to be put in place, that could be automated as well if you invest in the right technology. If any of this is sounding alien, again, I'd encourage you to reach out to your current vendors first. You know There are lots of solutions in the market. See what they can do. If it's not enough or it's not what you need, then, then reach out or we'll set you up with uh, the right people, whether they be partners or ourselves or, or certain experts. But uh, there is a lot more that can be done that isn't currently And I think that's because people are so busy, they don't have time to keep up with the market innovation. Um, And particularly the last couple of years where a lot of conferences have been online rather than, you know, maybe you're walking the floor of an in-person one and you sort of go, oh, I didn't know that, or I didn't know this technology existed. Some of that's been lost as well. So yeah, master data management, configuration, and then automation technology linked together is, it's not going to give you the whole answer, but it's incredibly powerful to get you, you pretty close.
0: No, that's a that's a fantastic and a, and very thorough response. I really appreciate it. And I think your point about you know moving people off being data gatherers, you know, out hunting data, and allow empowering them to you know conduct infec- effective investigations and do what they're really good at, which is applying you know human intuition and human insight to the problem, um, is just essential, especially right now when we're dealing with such as you noted complex. Uh, sanctions evasion structures. Um, so, yeah, fantastic points all around, Alex. Um, we, actually,
1: we actually had a case study of of a, a sanction screening solution. There's I won't go into because I want it to be a promo. But the key point was it saved this company a huge amount of time. We thought they would invest that time in efficiency gains, cost effectiveness, etc. They didn't. They invested the time back into analyst engagement and the amount of time they allowed for each investigation, which they said led to higher quality results. Um, so, you know, my economic brain was like, oh, I thought you were going to, you know, bank the <laughs> bank the budget. Not at all. Reinvested, did a much better job and reported a much happier team. And I think just to, just wanted to back up your point around, you know, how good these investigators are when given the tools and the time. Um, that's really who we, we are sort of uh, doing business to try and serve. Um, so, yeah, if you're one of those people, then, you know, clap. I uh, clap to you <laughs> <The other> guys <laughs> actually make it happen. We're just trying to facilitate.
0: That's excellent. Yeah. No, th- thank you for that. And, and yeah, definitely shout out to uh, definitely shout out to uh, all of the people out there doing this work um, and, and really, you know, struggling in some cases and, and striving to do it right so appreciate all the listeners out there uh, Alex it's been a real pleasure having this conversation and uh, hopefully for all the audience out there we have uh, we've given you some insights to go beyond the list to get at ownership, to get at networks and to get even into the cautionary piece because it is really more important than ever um, so thank you so much Alex for the time um, for the insights again my guest has been Alex Pillow, Director KY uh, I see market strategy with Moody's analytics and definitely urge anyone who's interested in learning more to uh, check out Moody's analytics for all of the great solutions they offer. But as Alex has mentioned, also, also the thought leadership pieces, their podcasts, um, white papers, so on and so forth. They have some great resources out there if you're just interested in the the education side. Um, But Alex, thanks again for the time and the insights. Thank
1: you. Really appreciate the opportunity and the conversation.
0: Yeah. And look forward to having all of our audience join us on another episode of the Financial Crimecast. You can find us on uh, Apple, Spotify, and many other places where you get your favorite podcasts. So have a great rest of the day and a great rest of the week. Goodbye for now, everyone.